Welcome to another episode of Stop Button Favorites, a podcast of the website, thestopbutton.com. My name is Andrew Wycliffe. My website is thestopbutton.com, and Stop Button Favorites is a monthly podcast with an audio commentary of some uh, movie I've written about on the Stop Button that is a favorite. Um, This month's subject is Innocent Blood from 1992, directed by John Landis. It was suggested by Philip O'Neill. I think because Innocent Blood is a weird movie for me to like. Um, Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I like it a lot, so we'll we'll get to that in a second. But I'm watching the iTunes rental just because it's widescreen and... The only way to get Innocent Blood widescreen in Region 1 is through Warner Archive, which I have not yet done because I have a perfectly good Region 2 widescreen, or Region 4 actually, widescreen Innocent Blood that I got many years ago and I've been happy with. But uh, the PAL speed-up would make it difficult for someone to listen to the commentary. The iTunes rental runs 1 hour 55 minutes exactly. And so, you know, if you're on something else, we'll try to sync up off the Warner Brothers logo, which is going to be starting in a second because I'm hitting hitting play right now. There's the Warner Brothers logo. So, Innocent Blood came out in the theater in 92, and I remember that. I remember reading about it in Entertainment Weekly. 92, I would have been 14. It it bombed in the box office, so I never would have had the chance, but I did see it pretty immediately upon VHS release. And I think I'd like the previews for it or something. And I think at that point, if I had seen American Werewolf in London, I really liked it. And if I hadn't seen it, I thought I should uh, really like it even without seeing it because it was so renowned at that point. The Howling had sort of gotten... Crappy sequels had ruined the memory of The Howling, whereas um, American Werewolf in London didn't have any crappy sequels at that point to uh, degrade the franchise, so to speak. And also, the uh, when American Werewolf in London did have a sequel, it was so bad and absurd that nobody really – it was – extended enough that didn't really hurt the reputation of the original. And I'd seen a lot of John Landis movies. I don't know if in high school what I really thought of him, though, if I thought of him at all. 14, I probably wouldn't have even known he'd, you know, killed children and actors in helicopter accidents. 
but I wouldn't have seen the Blues Brothers. I, yeah. So the other thing about movies from this period, and it might have just been that I was seeing a lot more modern movies. I was seeing more movies by this time, 92. I was hunting down more modern movies, um, thanks to Entertainment Weekly. So, oh, and here the movie starts. So I had probably not seen Lithum Nikita at this point either. Or if I had, I saw the dubbed version. Does anybody remember that? There was a dubbed version of La Femme Nikita. But I like, you know, this would have been in the period where I was reading, what was it, Fred Saberhagen's Dracula books and... Uh, I would have... Like, respectable horror movies weren't really a thing at this time. I don't... It was House of... It was Night of Demons and all those... Prom Night 2 and 3 at the Blockbuster, you know? It was not... There was not classy um, horror movies at least not in my impression of them at that age. It was slasher movies. Uh, David Provel, who I never feel like gets enough credit. Was he in Goodfellas or something? And he was underbilled. I, he's memorable enough that before I had seen this again the last time, I wonder if that was just a Godfather. This, of course, um, 92 would have been the rise of Chaz Palminteri, which, of course, was over by 96. Um, but I was a big Chaz Palminteri fan even though I wouldn't have known who he was in 92. The next year, of course, was what? Bronx Tale, 93. And then Faithful or Faithless, the one with Chess Palmentary and Cher. I saw that in the theater opening day. I was like one of the only two people in the theater. But and Anthony the Paglia, this would have, I think, was the first thing I saw him in. There wasn't really a lot to see him in. He did an interesting noir with Mimi Rogers. I can't remember what it was called. Um, Matt Craven was in it. I need to see that again. That was sort of 
the rise of, that was like 95, 96. And it was when you would have uh, like Republic pictures, you know, crappy um, I swear I just saw that um, going through the center of the earth China joke and something else. But Robert Logia to me would have been a guest star on Law and Order or Murder, She Wrote, or maybe Perry Mason. He was not a cool mobster figure when I first saw those. And then there's the guy from The Sopranos over there. But since Goodfellas came out in 90, I really didn't see it as affecting cinema that much. This was... This is going to be good in a second, but... Um, it, it didn't really seem like when you look back on film of the last 30 years, it's, it's like Goodfellas still stands out, whereas Casino doesn't. And there used to be lots of mobster movies. So seeing this today, okay. So, I mean, to some degree, and this plays in with Goodfellas too, why it was so popular is that the humor level is very um, 14-year-old boy. I love Logia's performance just because he's able to keep sort of the the jokey mobster stereotype, but he's able to make it frightening as well. So the last time I saw this, um, I think was last year, maybe at most two years ago. And I hadn't seen it in, oh, so that's like 2000, I hadn't seen it in about 12 13 years.
Yeah. I think this one was matted. Certainly not spherically shot. The editing is just is just very strange too. What I was saying about seeing it a year and a half or two years ago is that um, I'd since seen Into the Night again. For the Alan Smithy podcast, Matt and I listened to a lot of, or we watched a lot of John Landis movies, sort of more than we would have thought or he came up a lot um, just because it's John Landis. And if you grow up with a certain period of films, you grow up with John Landis. So coming back to this movie, which I had loved in high school, I mean, I had it on VHS. I had the laser disc. I never had the, U.S. DVD because it was pan and scan and I had the widescreen laser disc. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. Especially since it had been so long and the movie really had never gotten a reputation one way or the other. It had been forgotten. And with Chaz Palminteri there, you know, it, it looks like Bullets Over Broadway for a second. His Bullets Over Broadway character is very similar to elements of this character, that he's sympathetic and likable while still being a mob villain. So, I really hope this shot this one is actually snowing, otherwise it would have been a nightmare. This... This sort of point of view... We just left, I mean, she introduced the movie, but we left her narration and came back. It's not serious. When I was thinking about recording this commentary, I always love the the weirdness of her shaking her head at him in response to her own thought as opposed to his question.
Innocent Blood also, of course, has the thing with you're expected to know certain things about vampires going in, so she's not actually in danger from him. Oh, anyway, so when I was thinking about recording this commentary, I, I was apprehensive just because it lacks a certain scale of, of something to talk about. Like, I can't really talk about Landis's shot there. But then um, I thought about how it actually is something of a slapstick not slapstick, screwball comedy. Um, there's very gentle humor at times. There's very, the gentle music. This scene's a perfect example of that. He's supposed to be a hilarious caricature. And I can't remember what the previews were like, but they certainly, I think they were pretty good. I'm also a sucker for Pittsburgh location shooting. At this time, I wouldn't have, uh, when I was 14, that wouldn't have been something I, I knew yet, but I'd discover it. And... Coming back to this, it was cool to see uh, how much personality Landis can get out of the location. But you see how far the camera was away from him there? Here, this shot. It, he's acting to the camera, which of course is it adds this nice level of artifice to the movie that really makes it fun in a way that if it were supposed to be realistic, it would be far more uncomfortable. But Landis isn't going for any realism. He's going for an absurdly realistic situation, undercover cops and vampires and it's with, you know, mobsters. And instead he's, he's, he's right. <clears throat> it just became, it just became the naked gun version of cat people. Um, This might have been the first time you, a vampire could see his or her reflection when I was growing up. I mean, 
certainly in the Hammer movies and on TV, that was an easy way of, of showing the vampire. But this sort of animalistic um, it was just different to see then. Innocent Blood was the same year as Bram Stoker's Dracula, too. So it was sort of the height of vampire stuff in the mainstream. I wonder who that is. It's a Landis movie, so of course... All the bit parts are uh, somebody. This one has a fr great Frank Oz cameo. And here's Angela Bassett right before... She got um, acknowledged. But Landis just did the same thing. Oh, I mean, Louise Guzman's in it. Like, how can you not love it? But... He's the bad guy in something. I can't remember what, though. But that's what I mean by this early 90s character actor, stable, Leo Burmeister, Luis Guzman. It was a lot smaller than what you see now. Because really, when I think about modern movies, they have far smaller supporting casts than something like this. Unless they're big event movies, it's like they've got to have a more restrained cast for budget. Don Rickles. When I would tell people to see this movie and they would 
they would be um, unimpressed by the idea of it. Um, I did at least get one person to see it just because John Rickles was in it. That's Tom Savini, I think. <laughs> the profile shots are just strange in this. And That's another weird thing about this is that Robert Luigi has played for laughs to a certain point, but he's incredibly dangerous. Um, And he's able – and Landis is able to turn the comedy of what happens next into a mix of, of danger and um, absurd humor and then actually touching romance. It, it, that's, I guess, where the screwball element comes from. It's – But again, I mean, talking about the pacing, we're 25 minutes into the movie and she really does not feel like the protagonist yet. It's John Landis, so car stuff. Matt and I should really put together all of the John Landis movies we talked about just because there's so much to talk about when you look at his whole style. And something like Innocent Blood stands out just because it it wasn't a hit. But it also has this real finished quality about it. I mean, the snow, it's very memorable. 
Shades of foul play. But again, see, he's not incompetent about it. He actually can operate all of his love shack. Paraphernalia. The screwball comparison might also just be that everybody in it is a lot more uh, was that garlic? See that the tone here changes. The humor's sort of gone. The mirrors are really playing in. Everybody saw this as John Landis doing a vampire movie in the way he was doing American Werewolf you know, redefining the genre or whatever, but it's not it's far more about sort of the violence and just So 35 minutes in and
Was this the beginning of the second act? And there's one of the Hammer Dracula movies. Leo Burmeister's so good. He was in the abyss, I think. The films of Louise Guzman should be a <laughs> Landis getting in a Dan Quayle joke or something. So this the script never really makes the undercover cop thing realistic enough. There's not enough time spent on it. So by doing it exaggerated, Landis is able to sort of throw a bowl of spaghetti against the wall and enough of it sticks. Is that Dennis Franz? I wonder what the the story of this is. Um, I don't think the writer's really done anything else. 
as I quietly try to look that up. Michael Walk. Who's done nothing else? Um, I wonder what the story with it is. Was it ever more serious one way or the other? Because Landis never... Sort of... Landis always... Was adept at at this point anyway commenting on movie tropes um and not his if he was doing spoofs they were far more thoughtful than um like the airplane guys so he never really encouraged that um, with his film choices, though. He never really played it up too much. I always love this sequence because it's it's happening uh, alongside the other action it's taking a break from the police investigation at the scene and he has left that to go off and chase the girl And of course, she's in a church, which should be a no-no. That's how you do a flying effect. I'm not sure, but I don't know if anything that's done sort of a full flying vampires, there's got to have been something that's done it since um, CG. I just haven't seen it. Um, you know, at this time you just had to figure out how to stylize it whether it was uh, Lost Boys or Bram Stoker's Dracula 
just a very strange chase sequence. Landis is constantly um, reminding the viewer to think like we're not just getting this cop chasing monster thing. We're getting, that's his dog. I want to watch Wonder Boys again all of a sudden. Anyway, um, the interludes with Anne Parlod are... She still hasn't become the protagonist. We've we've shifted over to being Anthony Paglia, yet this story is going to need um, to move to her at some point, and it's very careful to make that a, an easier transition. that the closed shower scene actually would have been a perfect point to do some more narration and they could have even gotten away with it but by not doing it it's even better Landis has a certain softness with how he approaches her that's unlike anything else in the film and it got me thinking about Landis movies with not just strong female characters, but predominant ones. Um, you can say Jenny Otgutter is strong in uh, American Werewolf, but she's not really in it that much. Here and Into the Night as well, uh, which is the other Landis movie that I really just love, There is a certain amount of, well, it's not a certain amount. There's the female character has a, is is not just the subject of pursuit, whether it's Jeff Goldblum in that film or Anthony Paglia in Innocent Blood. She's also a, well, worth the pursuit, but also positioned for the audience in a different way. Even, it, it's funny how Land, they draw attention to her changing out of the dress and then this is what he's paying attention to as well when he really shouldn't have been. Just like the viewer shouldn't have been. <laughs> Just goofy contact lenses and then um, a cut that can never have seemed natural to anyone. It just pulls you out a bit. 
Conga. And here's Frank Oz. I actually thought that Frank Oz's sequence came at the end. There's some disgusting special effects, presumably. Well, not presumably, but I really should have looked it up to see if they were Tom Savani's. Excuse you. Sorry, I this is just such a good sequence. Here we go. <laughs> Again, it's this sort of screwball Howard. It's 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 his girl Friday right now for a second. Like Is this conga still? Another, you know, sort of subplot of the film has to be just the stupidity of uh, men, whether it's the mobsters or it's the security guard there. There's some of that Pittsburgh architecture that... Uh, 
I don't really think any place else feels like that. It's distinctly smaller, but very finished. I'm sure those were directors. There's your second. That might be Forrest J. Ackerman. There's your second um, swerving cars. Here is Anne Parlade in the cathedral. I think that was the foreign poster, though she was monstered out at that time. The humor. And again, we've just come back to the action. All the reporters were still around at the crime scene, and he just returned to it. And he's got Cinderella's shoe. And. Again, it's very screwball written comedy, but with a uh, a far different, very 80s and 90s uh, comedy approach. So we haven't seen um, the bullet wound really heal, but he has. So clearly there's – the way that the script does the vampire logic is good without ever drawing attention to it.
There's also a show-off quality to some of the effects. The close-up on Logia there. I mean, it's a it's he's sh- Landis is showing off the makeup. Does the same thing with Ann Parlod's vampire transformations and things. Uh, he really embraces it's prideful I guess which is cool because it Landis isn't trying to hide anything which is cool in that He's not trying to hide the unreality of certain things. Again, really weird. (laughs) And Landis handles it in a very muted way. Yeah, so even though it never gets into the vampire mythology, um, Lepaglia still comments on it. And then we have this very grandiose music. Excuse me. And it's like, was it so low budget that um, Landis couldn't get more coverage? 
So is the use of close-ups, really good use of close-ups, is that budgetary or is that just Landis? Figuring out why Landis is actually capable of doing some really excellent films amid some complete misfires is one of those great questions. It Because again, here we go. Clearly they had this whole setup, you know, some fog machines, a bunch of cop cars. It's using dialogue to move the movie along. <laughs> the language thing with her is also interesting because it it sort of cuts down on the sort of dialogue stuff, but she still has these wonderful little moments. It's a weird, um, I think this was her first or second American movie. Uh, you can't remember when Map of a Human Heart was, but it, by American, I mean English language. Um, it's a terrible showcase for uh, someone because all it does is it shows she can play a French girl, which is... <laughs> But it's just these nice 
these very nicely composed comedy sequences with Landis knowing how to do it. Don Rickles just hit somebody in the head with a shovel. It's funny. And this is a small comedy sequence. Like, it's not as big as lots of Landis's get. It's kind of interesting to see. Even though some of this is incredibly familiar at this point when it sort of splits so equally between Logia and Paglia and Parlod that I don't remember a lot of it.
There's Mutt and Jeff Cops. There's Mutt and Jeff Mobsters. She throws a long way earlier with the gun and now with the police light. Except for that, she didn't throw that very far. The the sound delays on both the... Excuse me, on the cop car light and on when she threw Anthony Lepagley's gun away are so long you have to wonder if they're intentionally that long to imply her super strength. Landis had just done Oscar, which I've only seen once. And that was mob movie in the late thirties sense. So maybe he was just in a screwball kind of mood. strange action sequence (laughs) again some of it is it budgetary is Landis with too much money a problem
the sort of screwy Ira newborn music. Car chase music. Actually, the sound just went out on the uh, iTunes rental. So, yeah, that was a little weird. The sound just cut out. But it's back now. And now we go straight into a car chase. But one of the interesting things about LaPaglia in this is that he's not sympathetic. He's likable in his, you know, unsympathetic nature. I remember the first time I saw this, I was so confused. Was that the third instance of swerving cars? And I think him lighting on fire was part of the uh, trailer. Yep, John Landis car accidents. He just loves those car accidents. Wouldn't that mostly be second unit stuff for other people? Oh, and now Sam Raimi's in it. That's right. Which is only fair because in some of the uh, POV shots, one sort of sees... 
um, Evil Dead influence. It would have been hilarious if Robert Loggia had gotten an Oscar nomination for this. It's so weird. Um, It's like the most... Lengthy motel check in. Yeah, Landis does not go for the crane shots for lots of coverage, this one. He's clearly got him, and he doesn't go for him. Obligatory 90s R-rated movie sex scene coming up. This, of course, seems like a holdover from the 80s. Again, 
very screwball comedy. We're using a physical prop for humor alongside the dialogue. Man threatened by a powerful woman. I don't think it would work if she weren't French. I don't think it would work if it was anybody more or less forceful. And she has that very sweet look about her. And there you go. There's your Alfred Hitchcock cameo. Again, very strange. Vampires and innocent blood have pulses. They have reflections. They have marbly eyes. That don't see straight. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just remembering what this is. It's so bad. It's so inappropriate. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's incredibly cruel while still being absurdly funny because it's Don Rickles. I mean, and it's so gross. I think that's got to be a cameo as well. What's funny about the um, obligatory 80s and I'd say it might have started in the late 70s. I don't know. Uh, but definitely the 80s and 90s obligatory R-rated um, 
sex scene is that it's a lost art meaning it's like nobody can figure out how to do it anymore because it's hard not to do it without acknowledging the pointlessness of it in certain contexts whereas when people were sincerely doing it it worked better and this is interesting because rarely are you ever going to get a screwball um, pre-coital scene where um, you've got a naked girl
It's got to be the longest shot in the movie. And it's all a single tag. Probably the fittest Anthony Paglia ever had to be. But even when Landis is trying to be sensitive about it, there's just this clear awkwardness to it that you can't help but feel like you're watching a cheesy canon movie from 85. Because it's not really necessarily enough of one thing or the other to be effective. I mean, at this point, it seems like Warner's going for being sensational. But then you get to the strangely colored eye sequence, and it's actually affecting for a moment. But really what it is is that Landis just is not a um, exploitative enough. I mean, in some ways, or he doesn't think about it to the degree that somebody like Paul Verhoeven or Paul Schrader does. So there you go. We're finding out her name at about 90 minutes. And we had to introduce all the mob sidekicks at the beginning because we're going to go through them by the end. And while people were sleeping the day away, David Preble was getting his, <laughs> his foot operated on.
and he eats it. Nice. You know, of course, this is the Terminator at this point. Just so silly. I think Into the Night has a sequence very much like this. Okay, again, I don't exactly remember what happens now. Is there a mass destruction sequence? That would seem very Landis. See you next Wednesday, playing across the street.
This is just a weird sequence with the introduction and it's like um, Landis got the humor and how funny it would be to see Legia doing the faces, but the other problem is, is that the stuff with um, Lepagli and Parlod's gotten so strong, it's It's a act transition, maybe not the most graceful one. All right, so returning to the location in the opening. This was definitely in the trailer. Looks like Pepsi was definitely a uh, product placement. Vampire with gum. There have been no fangs in this. So we're amping up the danger factor. Our newborn's sort of underappreciated. He's able to sell what he needs to sell. 
Again, 80s and 90s, everybody goes to the strip club, apparently. Mutton Jeff. Okay. Hopefully Mutton Jeff don't die. Diet Pepsi there. <laughs> the cute moment where They're a team because she's the muscle. It's like they can't sense vampires or something either. Not a lot on the... Uh... <laughs> I 
course, the scene only works because Louise Guzman's got such a great whining laugh or whining terrible thing. David Provo with his boot off. Very clearly on the step to make her taller. Now we get back into the the idea of the violence. And here you do get your big Landis finale. But again, it's not as crazy as usual. It's it's muted. No, it's the likable cop. (sighs) They must have filmed this in the middle of the night. There's just... 
in some ways that there being nothing, making it so much smaller. Uh, it allows for this feel, the, the, the team aspect of Anne Parlade and Anthony LaPaglia. I mean, you, you basically just have a movie where the cop just blew up the mobster with gasoline that's usually reserved for an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or a bad Stallone movie. Or The Terminator. It strangely takes the movie away from her I wonder how they did this pre-CG. a process shot. I really, okay, here we go. <laughs> so vampires are a lot less sturdy in this. Now we have the big dramatic finish. This is strange pacing of things. Convenient motel. Cameo as the desk clerk, perhaps. His hair is different. I wonder if it's a
reshoot. Very 90s dating jokes amid this very Yep. <laughs> it's just a funny end. <sighs> it really is the type of movie that would make me think I should go and see more John Landis, but I've seen enough John Landis to know that no movie should ever make me go see more John Landis. Like, uh, just the weirdness of who gets credited and so on. Um, so I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, I had it on Laserdisc. I... Yeah, it was Tom Savani. And, oh, wow. They, ca they credit... The uh, people on TV, that's pretty cool. Um, Bell Lugosi, it was Force J. Ackerman. They, he, credit, <laughs> he credited Alfred Hitchcock. Um, so that like level of mm, detail, I think by 92 people had given up on John Landis. He'd made one too many Oscars, one too many, um, even Spies Like Us. Of course, this is pre-internet, so it's not like Landis would have had the same kind of fan base that he would have had today. It, it, Directors rarely, people rarely seem to get possessive about directors today. I'd say that um, not even Joss Whedon really qualifies. Um, Wes Anderson might be the last one. So it's just a little strange to think about how something like Innocent Blood completely went under the radar. Um, it seems like movies that maintained their reputation, um, like American Werewolf in London, they had a certain amount of zeitgeist to them, a certain amount of special effects and enough popularity at the time as opposed to um, now when we are rediscovering things. Wish to thank Bram Stoker. Yeah. 
innocent blood. You know, it's got a couple act issues, but I just think it stands up. I was shocked the last time I saw it, and this time, certainly not. This viewing certainly didn't change my mind any. Made me want to see more Anne Parlaud movies and probably watch Lantana again and maybe see something else Robert Logia did and figure out what that movie that David Provel doesn't get enough credit for. So next episode is going to be The Faculty, which is my own choice. Um, should be another interesting rambly commentary. I apologize for the... Um, lengthy silences here. I hope that uh, while I wasn't talking, you were able to pay attention to the movie because usually it was uh, when Landis was setting up some good comedy um, sequence and I was just appreciating it. But once again, thank you for listening to this episode of Stop Button Favorites and um, I'll be back next month. <laughs>